Hello and welcome to another installment of Soccer Pints, your one-stop shop for all things American soccer. I'm your host, Will Clark. If you aren't familiar, Soccer Pints is an American soccer podcast where we cover everything we can about U.S. soccer, Americans in Europe, Major League Soccer, and many other exciting topics. Not only that, but we also enjoy a nice pint or two during these chats. So pour yourself a beverage, if you're of age, of course, and let's get into it. Well, due to some Hurricane Adelia in the area last week that led to some earlier-than-expected travel, it's been two weeks since we dropped our 60th episode, and as expected, we had our U.S. Men's National Team roster release for our upcoming friendlies this Saturday and next Tuesday since that time. So today, we're going to take a look at our roster choices, break down the best starting 11 we could have out of this group, and take a look at some of the missing names in camp and who should have maybe been called in. All in all, and I hate to admit this so early into an episode, but I think Greg Berhalter made some incredibly smart decisions with the overall setup in camp. To wrap things up today, I'll answer a few questions and share my final thoughts of the week. As always, let's kick today's episode off with a new beer feature for the week. Coming out of Burlington, Vermont, a state known for many incredible breweries, we have Burlington Beer Company, and specifically today, I've got a unique yet delicious pint for us. Their Riverboat Racketeer is what I'm pouring, and this is a Lemon Meringue Pie Milkshake IPA coming in at 6.5% in alcohol and is made with lemons, graham crackers, vanilla, and milk sugars. So you definitely get this Lemon Meringue Pie marshmallowy Fluff Lemon Custard flavor, which I'll be honest, I've never had anything like this before, but it's pretty delightful. So why did I choose Burlington Beer Company this week? Pretty simple, really. I've had a few of their beers before, and once again, my local beer shop here in Wilmington, North Carolina, for mental, came through by getting some good ones in stock, and I knew I had to snatch up what I could. Burlington Beer is an independent craft brewery established back in 2014 that dedicated themselves to creating several award-winning beers with consistent IPAs and lagers, along with several other creations and rotating seasonals. They have over 40 brews on tap and feature a restaurant with some great food options as well. Joe Limna is the founder and owner of this incredible brewery and is a true local to Burlington, having been born there. He worked for three other breweries, including Dogfish, where he worked his way up from the packaging line to eventual assistant brewmaster, which Combined with his own 200-plus homebrew batches that he's made, he started Burlington Beer, having more than 10,000 hours of professional brewing experience under his belt. It shows in the product, it shows in the taste, and just the overall dedication to creating great beer. So, thank you to Joe and to all the staff at Burlington Beer for letting me feature you this week. Cheers! All right. Well, let's jump straight into this September roster release from last Wednesday. Talk about who made the cut, who didn't, and maybe give a slight preview or prediction into the starting 11 when the U.S. takes on Uzbekistan tomorrow in St. Louis. And I've already said this, but Greg made some really smart decisions with his selections, and he's come out strong for his first roster since returning as head coach. Clearly, some selections are obvious when you think about our top squad players, but usually, I think we expect to see more of the so-called Greg guys from MLS who get called in, but clearly there's better options. But this time, we didn't see that. He went with about as strong of a roster as he could have possibly called in, and I was glad he did. Because we need to perform, and we need to continue to build that chemistry, the continuity, and just overall, we need our best players getting more accustomed to one another. This isn't going to be your normal World Cup cycle for the U.S. So, 
we are already qualified for the 2026 World Cup as a host nation. While we have friendly scheduled this month and next, other nations have their own World Cup qualifiers, European competitions, and other important international fixtures. And the U.S. doesn't have those this go-round. Without further ado, let's jump into it. Let's look at our goalkeepers. And the top one is, once again, our starting goalkeeper, Matt Turner, as well as his club teammate and top backup in Ethan Horvath. We also have another relatively new name. He was actually on our Nations League roster this summer, but he's yet to make an appearance for the national team in Drake Callender, who currently plays for the Messi-led Inter-Miami and MLS. We are missing guys like Gaga Slonina, Zach Steffen, Josh Cohen, and other potential backups for a variety of reasons. But all in all, I think Burhalter got this one right. Turner is the clear-cut number one. Horvath has been our two for a year or so now. And Callender really has gained a lot of momentum and experience in Miami this season. In front of these guys in defense, some more familiar faces. And Serginho Dest, Tim Ream, Chris Richards, Anthony Robinson, Joe Scally, as well as Miles Robinson from MLS. Some surprises in there include Mark McKenzie getting back into the mix over someone like Austin Trusty or Walker Zimmerman. And then there's also Kevin Paredes who was called in. He's most recently been with our U-20 national team and is playing for Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga. And then a complete surprise out of left field type of call up for Christopher Lund, who is currently with Serie B squad Palermo in Italy. Lund is a left back who played for the Denmark youth national teams, but he filed a one-time switch to be eligible for the U.S. squad. Given our inability to find a proper backup for left-back Anthony Robinson, Lund gives the U.S. fans an option that many, including myself, are unfamiliar with. It looks as though he has great potential, but there's a lot that remains to be seen with him. Guys like Cameron Carter-Vickers, Zimmerman, Eric Palmer-Brown, even Dewan Jones were mentioned as defensive presences who were dealing with injuries or who are still in the process of getting back to health. Therefore, they could not be considered for camp, and that gave opportunities to others to get into the fold. But overall, this is a strong group of defenders who have a lot of familiarity with one another. Up in the midfield, we have one notable missing name still, and that is Tyler Adams, who has still not recovered from injury yet. We also do not have Gio Reyna in camp. I'll save my rant since I used it last time out on Greg still not having communication with Gio, but in the press conference last week, Greg was asked about Gio, and Greg disclosed that Gio was dealing with a broken leg from the Summer Nations League injury that he picked up, and it was not muscle-related, as had been reported and speculated on. Either way, Greg and Gio need to figure out a way to mend things so that Reyna can feature as a 10 in this talented midfield group. So missing two major names, but we still have called in Weston McKinney, Eunice Musa, Luca De La Torre, Malik Tillman, as well as Johnny Cardoso, and newcomer Ben Kramashi. And I'm going to butcher his last name as I go through today. But he's an 18-year-old from Inner Miami. Cardoso picked up an injury less than 12 hours before the roster was announced and has since been replaced on the roster by Tanner Tessman, from Serie B, B squad Venezia. But the cl- big surprise in the news was the call-up of the dual national Kramashi, who has really stepped up in his place since Messi's arrival in Miami. He also is eligible to represent Argentina, ironically. 
So I don't know if this is a true recruiting attempt by Burhalter here or if he genuinely feels like Kramashi has earned this call-up. I know the potential's there. I know he's done some good things this season in MLS, but he wasn't called into our U-20 World Cup squad. And I do believe there were other more deserving players that could have been brought in as well. Personally, I'm really excited to see him in camp. And I believe he's someone that could have a huge future in U.S. soccer. I think for someone like De La Torre or Tillman, who have been struggling to get a ton of playing time within this national team, this could be a great chance for them to step in, show their skill sets with Adams and Reyna not in camp. Up in the attacking group of players, we have the reinvigorated Christian Pulisic back in camp. He's joined by Fuller and Balogun, Brennan Aronson, Tim Weah, Ricardo Pepe, and another member from our U-20 World Cup squad in Cade Cowell, who we got to see with the national team during this summer's Gold Cup. Two names that Burhalter mentioned as injured are Josh Sargent and Taylor Booth, and most likely they both would have been called into camp if healthy. We didn't see Haji Wright called in despite his recent success in the English Championship with Coventry City. We also didn't see Jesus Ferreira called in, when I know everyone thought that was a foregone foregone uh, conclusion as one of Greg's ultimate favorite players. It's a competitive group. Many have had to change had a, many have had a change of scenery this summer with new clubs and transfers, but this is still a very young group, excluding Tim Ream. And while we should win both of these friendlies pretty easily, you should expect a few growing pains depending on the style or system that Greg wants to implement against these opponents. Greg did mention that he was bringing back assistant coach BJ Callahan to the coaching staff as well as U-20 U.S. World Cup coach Mikey Veras earning promotion to the senior team coaching staff as well. I absolutely love both of these additions to the staff. I thought they were both were incredible presences in U.S. soccer over the spring and summer, and I believe they will continue to influence within our senior team. So what should we expect on Saturday against Uzbekistan as a predicted starting 11 that I promised I would guess? We know Turner is going to be in goal. Desch should be on the right side with Ream and Richards centrally in defense. Bookended with Anthony Robinson on the left. In the midfield, I think we're going to see Musa and McKinney with De La Torre alongside them. And up top, Pulisic on the left, Weah on the right, and Ballo in the middle. I considered shifting Aronson into that 10 roll over De La Torre, even potentially Tillman. But I'd love to see what De La Torre can do creatively. If he's given a chance, I don't think people spend enough time watching him in La Liga and what he can do. So this is his opportunity and I hope he takes it. Overall, I expect continuity with a lot of our guys and we're going to incorporate others throughout this match and next Tuesday as well. I don't know anything about either of these nations in Uzbekistan and Oman, but I'm going to say we're going to win 3-0 and 4-0 in these two friendlies. And I think the players who stand out are going to be Tim Weah, Christian Pulisic, and of course, Bala. I expect them to play with a bit more freedom like we saw over the summer with when Callahan was in charge. I think defensively, we're going to be solid. But these friendlies are all about our attacking group and getting in goals, building that confidence, and learning how to work together for the future. Goals are going to be the biggest takeaway for me. And I say this because too many times we don't put the ball in the back of the net. So tune in tomorrow to see if I'm correct with that. Okay, well... 
time for me to move into the Q&A session for today with only one topic to really go over with the roster release. I wanted to spend the remainder of today answering a few questions, and then I'll get into a final thought or two for the week. First up this week, why do we see so many guys out with injuries time and time again? It seems like the usual players who have potential to break through and then they get hurt. Well, I wish I had a magic answer for you on this one, but there are so many variables that go on during a season, and sometimes it's just bad luck for these players. You have to remember that this isn't just a sport they play for fun. This is their livelihood. They get paid pretty great money to get to play a sport that we all love. And when you get hurt, you're vulnerable to losing your spot in your club. You're at risk for not being deemed necessary by your manager. Sometimes the pressure is so high to get back on the pitch and perform that you push yourself too early and re-aggravate an injury or you overcompensate and end up with an even worse injury. There's also the amount of matches that these guys are playing. They're training every single day. They sometimes have two or three matches in a seven or eight day span. It puts a lot of strain and wear and tear on their bodies. But we do tend to see a lot of the same names over and over again. And that's frustrating. Reyna is a clear and obvious one. Johnny Cardoso is another who seems to always get injured right before a camp starts. Look at Josh Sargent, absolutely tearing it up on the early on in the, the championship and then literally tears his ankle up. We see it in every sport. It sometimes ends careers. It certainly derails a lot of careers, but I can assure you every nation deals with the same issues with their players. It's not just a U.S. problem. Up next in the questions today, you ranted last week about Greg not talking to Reyna yet and how it shouldn't be possible that a coach hasn't spoken to one of his main players. Why did we rehire him if this is going to be a thing still? Well, for the second time in as many answers, I will say I wish I had a magic answer for, magic answer for you on this one. Why did U.S. soccer rehire Greg? I could go on and on and on with my thoughts on this again, but I'm going to spare you this rant. I've made my opinion known on this. Although in the press conference, Greg touched on it lightly, he seemed to be very thoughtful or mindful with his words that he spoke and the way that he phrased it. He wants to make sure it's handled the right way. He's speaking with a mediator on potential solutions to get that communication going. For me, I think if U.S. soccer truly feels that it was in the best entrance of the organization to rehire Greg, and it wouldn't be an ongoing issue with Gio as a player within the squad, then that's what we have to believe is the right thing for U.S. soccer. Now, we can all disagree on that decision. I know I didn't like it, still don't love it. I still think it's ridiculous that he hasn't spoken to him. I get the personal stuff is there between their families, but at the end of the day, as manager, as coach of the national team, it is your duty to communicate with your players, to ensure that they are doing the necessary things when they're not with the program to grow and develop and to get a place or get to a place where they can excel when their time comes. And when in good health, I should add too, we rehired Greg because we didn't have a better option. We saw rumors out there. None of them were realistic. It's sad to say it, but for the direction the national team was going, they didn't want to mess with the continuity and decided to stick with what was comfortable with ultimately what would make their jobs easier as an executive team. 
It remains to be seen what is ultimately going to happen with this relationship between Greg and Gio Reyna. But what I will say, no matter how I feel about Greg or his reappointment as the head coach of the national team, one single player is not bigger than a coach. And a coach is not bigger than a single player. This is a collective group of individuals. And we need the top 23 players at any given time to be committed to the bigger cause, which is winning the 2026 World Cup. Some way, somehow, these two need to push the past, put it behind them, move on to the future. You don't have to like each other, but you sure as hell better respect one another during business hours and achieve that bigger cause. All right, third question today. How is it that one player can take a team that is so bad and make them a contender overnight? Is MLS really that bad that one guy can come in and take the league to a level it's never seen? Well, thank you for the question. And I can only assume that this was meant about Messi and Inter-Miami and how they have been nearly unstoppable in the past month and a half since his arrival. I'll start with the easiest answer I can give to you for this. Messi is unlike any player you have ever seen in your lifetime. He's going to go down as the greatest player of all time, hands down in our generation. He himself is unstoppable. However, it's ignorant to say that one player has taken Inter-Miami from a laughing stock of the league to overnight contender and biggest club in MLS at the moment. Miami brought in his former Barcelona teammates, Sergio Busquets, Jordi Alba. They have former MLS MVP, Joseph Martinez, in the squad. Two current U.S. men's national team campers in Calendar and Kramashi. They've also got DeAndre Yedlin there, too, along with several other talented individuals. It's not just one single player. But when you add the world's most popular player to MLS, it's inevitable that the world's going to take notice. The fact that Messi joined just in time for the inaugural League's Cup between MLS and Liga MX of Mexico created this perfect storm. And Messi delivered some world-class performances and helped Inter-Miami claim the title. This is just the start of something really special. Has it helped MLS in every way, shape, and form? Absolutely. But Miami still sit 14th in the Eastern Conference, eight points out of ninth place in that final playoff spot, with only nine matches left, plus a U.S. Open Cup final match that's all in the middle of it. In addition, Messi will miss this weekend's game, along with several others in MLS, for international fixtures. So, Before we crown Miami and Messi specifically as champion of MLS, think again. It's also not unlike other leagues in sports for what it's worth. For all of those who look down at soccer and think that this is what that is. LeBron James took essentially every team in the NBA that he's played with on his shoulders, led them to greatness. Tom Brady seemed to do the same in in the NFL. Pat Mahomes is doing the same now too. One guy can be a difference maker for any club in any sport in any league. When they're great, you just have to sit back and appreciate it. And we can all agree that having Messi and MLS in Miami is just something none of us ever thought would happen at this point in his career. It's special, but it's going to be extremely difficult for Messi to take Miami all the way this season. All right, finally, on to the last question today. What is the best beer that you've had this summer? I do love and appreciate a good beer question. I can't believe summer is almost over with, even though the temperatures here in North Carolina don't suggest that it's going away anytime soon. But best beer of the summer for me 
It's a tough one. I've had quite a few options to choose from. Had some great ones from the New York and New England area last month during my visit there. But this past weekend, I had one at Burial Beer in Asheville that is one of the highest rated beers that you'll find just about anywhere coming in at a 4.4 on untapped rating. A double IPA called Anatomical Transmutation. Just outrageously good every time I've had it. Now, I'm about to put a selfish plug out there, but I've also heard sometimes it's okay to be selfish. I was telling my good friend and owner of Palm City Brewing, Mr. Ryan Bowen, that I genuinely believe that his IPAs are getting close to Burial's level, if not even better in some instances. Now, I know that's a massive statement to make, but I, I believe it. So while I said Burial's anatomical transmutation has been the best beer that I've had this summer, there's still time for Palm City to send a nice care package to try to change my mind. Ryan, I know you hear me. For that matter, any breweries that need a professional taste tester and want to see how they stack up against others, feel free to send those care packages over to me as well. All right, let's finish this episode up with a final thought. I know I said a couple of final thoughts earlier, but I think I'm going to end a, a little bit earlier so we can kick the weekend off. People always ask me about Premier League and Champions League and what each league means. And I use those two examples because I love watching the Premier League. And as my wife can confirm, it really doesn't matter who's playing. I'm going to watch it. But the Champions League for me is the second greatest competition in soccer, with the first being the World Cup. The Champions League takes place every year and is for European clubs only and is the best of the best in Europe. Last week, they had the Champions League draw for this year's competition, which will run later this month until the end of May or 1st of June of 2024. I was chatting with my buddy Chris Peel, who is the host of a newly created Pint House Soccer Stars podcast and who has graciously included me on his first ever episode. And hopefully we can collaborate more in the future. But Chris mentioned something that just makes me smile. We have 11 U.S. men's national team players in the competition this season. Pulisic and Musa got put in an absolute group of death as AC Milan will face off against Paris Saint-Germain, Newcastle, and Gio Reyna and Borussia Dortmund. Dest, Tillman, and Pepe and PSV were grouped with Arsenal, FC Lons from France, and Sevilla in Spain. Brendan Aronson and Union Berlin will go against Napoli, Real Madrid, and Braga out of Portugal. I'm also not including Jordan Pifak on this as he was recently loaned out from Union Berlin to Borussia Mönchengladbach for anybody who's curious. Carter Vickers and Celtic were drawn in with Dutch side Feyenoord, Atletico Madrid, and Lazio out of Italy. Sam Vines, who hasn't seen time with the national team since prior to the World Cup, I believe. His Belgian club, Antwerp, will face off against Barcelona, Porto, and Shakhtar Donetsk out of the Ukraine. We have also, or we also have Zach Steffen, who is technically a Man City player, but he will not feature on their roster for the Champions League. But there is another goalkeeper who will. 17-year-old U.S. youth Diego Cochin, who was included and looks like he might get to taste Champions League for Barcelona. Quite the accomplishment for the young man. The competition after the international break begins on Tuesday, September 18th and Wednesday the 19th. So if you have a chance to put any matches on, I highly recommend it. 
All right. Well, that wraps up today's episode. It was great to finally preview our first roster that was selected by Greg Burhalter in his return to our national team as head coach. Next week, we will be able to dive into the performances a bit and break down the results from both friendlies, as well as chat about what is next for our squad in their European seasons with, again, several of them getting to feature in the Champions League coming up in two weeks. If you have a question for the show or would like a specific topic to be discussed on the show, please send me a message on Instagram or email me directly at will.clark at thesoccerpints.com. I have loved getting so many questions recently, comments as well. It's been great to see, so please keep it up. Big time thanks again to Burlington Beer for being our beer feature today. Until next time, cheers, my friends.